The National Disability Insurance Scheme, or the NDIS, was set up to help people with disabilities achieve their goals. Initially, it was a groundbreaking idea, but in practice, many of those goals have not been met. In this episode of Law Matters, I'm really pleased to introduce you to Ellen Higginbottom. Ellen has been working at the firm as a law graduate and before that as a paralegal, and shortly she'll be admitted as a solicitor of the Supreme Court of New South Wales. Ellen has a lived experience of disability, which is why I'm so glad that she's agreed to host this episode. I'm Catherine Henry of Catherine Henry Lawyers. I hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Ellen Higginbottom, solicitor with Catherine Henry Lawyers. I have a real passion for disability and the law because I personally live with disability and I know how important the NDIS is for supporting my community. I am in a wheelchair and I also use a breathing machine, so you might hear a bit of fair noise in the background. That's just me and how I live. I'm honoured to be talking to Jenny Draddy, Principal at Draddy Legal. She's been working as a solicitor with cases involving the NDIS for many years. Jenny, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So do you think the NDIS started well? Um, no, I, I didn't become involved in the NDIS until 2020 when I had a client who needed to access it and get services and supports. And so I started to do research and I had a number of other clients who had had applied for NDIS and been through various processes. So I was able to get assistance from them, but it was very disjointed. It was very difficult to understand the um, local care coordinators and the support um, coordinators within the NDIS and what needed to be done. And really I was only able to navigate it because I was fortunate enough to have people that were experienced who directed me then to people who understood the system so that I could then do the application for my client and assist him through the whole process of getting a plan. So the impression that I got was that it was implemented very quickly and that was important because there was such a big gap in the community and within society for people with disability. But the cost of that was that the process wasn't clean, it wasn't well thought out as, as it could have been and um, that created its own problems. Can you give me an example of some of the frustrations that you and your clients have experienced with the NDIS? I've been very lucky in terms of my first foray into the NDIS initially with my client and getting assistance and very good support coordination within the NDIS. But since then, I've learnt that that's very hit and miss, that there are some people within the agency that are amazing, they're helpful, and then there's another group of um, people within the agency where their sole existence seems to be to block and provide no proper explanation and application of the legislation and the supports that they're supposed to be providing to participants. And certainly um, prior to the change of government, there has been some improvement now, but there's still such a big mess and also there's still ongoing problems that existed under the previous government. But basically it seemed to be deny, provide no proper reasons for the denial 
wear everyone down, completely exhaust them so that they just gave up and go went away. From my perspective, we've I've seen a situation where someone was required to purchase a vehicle, a brand new vehicle, prior to even applying to have the wheelchair modifications processed through NDIS. And when they finalised the application, it was denied because the person wasn't, uh, the agency wasn't sure about the person's life expectancy. So they had to jump through a whole number of hoops in reviews with OTs assessing, um, repeated assessments, just the lack of information from the agency and um, the lack of belief in the evidence by the experts such as OTs. So they had to jump through all these other hoops and it, it ended up being denied in the end and they had to fundraise uh, approximately $50,000 to be able to go to work. It's It's been a, uh, a drama of an experience. You've described just another horror story equivalent to the types of horror stories that I've been hearing along the way for participants. It's been terrible. For example, in the specialist disability accommodation scenario, um, what I'm seeing a lot at the moment is that the agency, um, when people are requesting single occupancy, and it's quite clear that they um, there's a number of reasons why that would be appropriate putting aside the Human Rights Convention obligations and rights to be able to reside alone, um, which is of an issue itself that the agency shouldn't be declining people where they are requesting single residency and not be required to live with other people um, who require SDA as well. So when you see the review application, there's nothing in there that explains why they've said no to the single residency. They just rely on the value for money as a global response. And then when you get to the tribunal with the statement of issues, again, um, rather than setting out for the tribunal where the issues are about the evidence and why they're saying it's appropriate for um, for, for shared accommodation instead and why it's been declined for a person to be able to reside by themselves. Again, you just get the value for money and a demand for further evidence and information, which completely drives me nuts and drives and outrages me really because the, um, the NDIS at the review stage and also prior to that has a capacity under the legislation to be requesting further information if they think the information's inadequate. So the implication of the statement of issues when they're requesting further information is that they haven't done their job back at the review um, application stage and ensured that they've got all the evidence that they think they require to make a decision. So it's just a waste of resources and a wearing down of everyone in, um, you know, having to fight for entitlements. Do you think it's a deliberate ploy? I do think it has been a deliberate ploy. Um, I think some of that culture probably still exists and it's going to take a long time to break down that culture. I think there is, I've seen evidence of change, but I don't know whether or not that's because I'm dealing with it because certainly I've had 
unrepresented um, applicants and NDIS participants who have just, you know, found the process at the AAT wearing down and so they've resorted to getting a solicitor and so I've ended up acting for them. And I, I see when I commence acting uh, are coming back from their position and the issues narrowing very quickly to um, either completely resolving or, um, you know, being very clear about something just being quite narrow. And on occasions that's probably a proper proper question to be um, being argued through between the, the participant and, and the agency. And so, so there, there is a change, but I don't think my, my view is at the moment is, is that because I was so voracious in pursuing um, a model litigant complaint and, um, and we ended up getting both myself and my client getting offers of apologies for the way that the litigation and the review application had been conducted at the AAT that they know I'm not going to stop because I, I kept going after we'd won that case with the with the complaints and I still haven't stopped because I don't think there's been proper accountability of either the lawyers or the um, staff back at the agency who had control of that. I, I get a better service really for my clients because I'm a known factor back at the agency and someone that they know is not going to um, be allowed to be for my clients and for the participants I'm representing to be rolled over. I'm Ellen Higginbottom, solicitor with Catherine Henry Lawyers, talking to Jenny Draddy from Draddy Legal about the NDIS. The Administrative Appeals Tribunal is where you go when you feel that you've been treated unfairly by the NDIS. I volunteer for review advocacy work at the AAT. I know you've had some dealings with the AAT and their inadequacies there. Where is the AAT going wrong? I think the AAT has been complicit with the NDIS in creating a large number of cases there and the backlog. And because they were not enforcing the NDIS to meet its obligations, so for example, um, the agency has not produced properly all the evidence and documents that it should be in the tribunal documents that it's required to do. They've given inadequate, as I was talking about before, statements of issues and demanding further evidence. And there's been, in one case, I was seeking orders um, on four separate occasions for production of relevant documents, and they were never provided, including right up until the door of the hearing, at which time the AG agency then capitulated on everything except for one matter and then said, oh, well, we're not required to produce these documents anymore. So there was no consequences from the um, Administrative Appeals Tribunal and the members and case conferences, registrars and people that, and registrars that hear directions hearings in terms of um, even really telling, in my experience, the agency off for its breaches. It, it was difficult for the tribunal 
because they had no capacity to introduce any punitive measures against the tribunal. So, for example, in the Victorian Civil Administrative Tribunal, um, while it's on in many areas um, a no-cost jurisdiction, which means that neither party will they both parties have to bear their own legal costs, and there won't be orders if you're successful or unsuccessful against you or for you in getting the other side to pay the legal costs. But it does have a provision which would have been if the NDIS had been going through the VCAT system that says if you've caused another party to incur legal expenses that were unnecessary, then they can make or cost orders um, against the NDIS, um, would be able to make cost orders against the NDIS. So, for example, that would have meant that at least three of those directions hearings, I would have been able to be getting cost orders in the thousands of dollars. And if you take that across the whole scheme and the conduct of the NDIS, then there would have been a very large disincentive for the agency to behave in the way that it was and just breach orders and directions being made by the tribunal because they knew that they were going to get away with it. Is it your impression that some of the AAT's delays, particularly in the NDIS division, are because of this sort of timetable slippage from the agency? I think it was, but I also think it was a deliberate strategy of the NDIS back at the agency under the Section 100 reviews to just be declining because they knew that when it would get to the agency, to the tribunal, that um, they would have a reasonable prospect of just even more wearing people down and that the process would be very difficult. Um, for, for the applicants. For example, one of my clients, every time we had a directions hearing or a case conference, he was actually in hospital. And if he'd been self-represented, that would have meant that he would have been waiting another four to six weeks um, to get an adjournment and have it re refixed. And But luckily, because I was on the record, I was able to appear without him. And so there wasn't that sort of delay. So and because the majority of NDIS review applications, the applicants are self-represented, th that causes a clogging up of the system. And I was writing to the then Attorney General, Michaelia Cash, as a result of um, the way that the NDIA was conducting one of my litigation matters, a case conference registrar in Victoria actually recommended that I take up the conduct of the NDIA with the um, users forum and look at practice notes um, to be directed to the NDIA to try and resolve this. So this was back in July of, of 2021. And um, and so she kind of, the case conference registrar kindly provided me with the person to contact the um, senior um, administrator up in Brisbane and I was writing and emailing, I did a three-page letter setting out the problems and how you'd be able to fix up and make it better for streamlining and have a better use of the resources of the tribunal. I got no response to any of that correspondence um, until I was um, threatening. I was writing to the then Attorney General, Michaelia Cash, 
predicting exactly what was happening and went on to become even worse in an overwhelm of cases in in the AAT, it was all absolutely obvious to everyone that this was what was going to be happening. It was also obvious that there were things that could be done to sort it out and nothing happened. The AAT is to be abolished this year. What would you like to see take its place? There needs to be a, um, a new body that has the confidence of the public, which means that there needs to be a complete cleaning out and um, appointment of um, new, new members who aren't tainted by um, what's happened with the current tribunal. Um, I think there needs to be serious consideration of the costs issues and maybe a looking at the way that the Victorian system works where there is a capacity to get costs orders, where, where an agency like the NDIS is completely misbehaving and disregarding its obligations as a model litigant. I, I have met with Matthew Swainson, who's now the Chief Legal Counsel of the NDIS, and I know that he is interested in looking at some sort of informal way of being able to, um, you know, resolve some of the issues under the legislation that, you know, are proper test cases. Because I put to him that the NDIS, like the tax office, should fund um, test cases where the law is uncertain. So, for example, the second bedroom under, it's it's now more, it now is settled, more settled in terms of um, the basis on which a second bedroom should be provided and is moving along. But there, there are questions that are around the legislation where it does require potentially litigation. And when that happens in the tax office, they then fund the applicant and the, the taxpayer to run their case so that there can be a proper ventilation of that. Unfortunately, under the NDIS Act, there's it's um, prohibited from being able to do that. So that's a reform that I think we should be looking at. But he also talked about having some other process that allows for that to be going because of the the acknowledgement of, you know, the, you know, it's difficult to be a litigant at any stage in, in whatever capacity you happen to be. And even if you're well resourced and, you know, swimming in money, it's still not a process that you really want to be going through. And so when you've got disability and you're having to, um, you know, contend with, uh, like I ex talked about before with one of my clients, where he was in hospital every time he needed to be um, potentially attending at the tribunal, that if we can find better ways of, you know, resolving these issues, then I would be open to looking at exploring that. But I don't, I haven't come up with any ideas at this stage about how that might work or look. Have you got any thoughts on the proposed, well, it's sort of in place now, the independent review system that Graham Innes is involved in? I have heard in terms of one of the first cases that was all first cabs off the rank when they were working through that and um, and the applicant was very happy with the outcome and it was good, but I haven't had a chance to 
um, really find out how, how well it's working now. So I haven't really form, formed a view yet, but it is something that um, I think has merit. It gets very messy and legal when we really should be talking about the people with disabilities who are actually looking for assistance. A lot of people with disabilities say they're exhausted by the fight. Does it exhaust you as well? <laughs> oh, it, it, some days, yes. It's completely exhausting. Um, I, I probably, I probably get more angry for short periods, and then just go, just suck it up and get moving, and you know, do what I do what I need to do. You do care about, and you see. What, what's happening to your client and um, you know you so it just keep it gives you that bit of extra energy I think to to go forward but you know at the moment I'm trying to find a bit of a better work balance balance life at life at the moment so it's sort of probably mixed up in a bit about the way I practice my law <laughs> my legal practice and um my reasons for exhaustion would be different to those that are for participants because they're, they're just confronted with so much and, you know, they're so courageous. Then to have on top of that this unwieldy system at times and then to have it not actually even implemented properly by the agency just increases the level of exhaustion for, for participants. In both my volunteer work assisting as a disability advocate, it is exhausting because I feel... The participants struggle. You spoke earlier about supported disability accommodation. That is a particularly rough area to assist people with because it feels like they have to have to prove or evidence really unreasonable aspects of their life. Had to assist someone that had to prove they had a psychological injury from living with other people before they could live on their own. They just wanted to start a family, get a girlfriend, return to work after a spinal injury. Personally, I find it really obtrusive providing reports all the time. I appreciate there is a need, you know, you don't want to spend government money for no reason, but it, you know, we've had clients that have had their entire medical records subpoenaed. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot for people to deal with. One of the issues that a client of mine and I, um, we met with um, with the agency also to talk about um, trauma and abuse because I think the, um, the conduct of the agency in subpoenaing entire medical records is very invasive and um, and under the current um, act for the tribunal, there's capacity to um, get evidence um, uh, where there's been abuse and trauma um, and as a child and, um, you know, the, the treatment that's been provided there, which you would not get access to in other jurisdictions. So that's something also that um, where we've asked the agency to look at in terms of the way that it actually deals with participants who come from abuse and trauma backgrounds, um, sexual trauma and abuse, so that they are better trained to understand. Because having to repeat 
their story is re-traumatising and damaging. Do you think that some broader maybe disability sensitivity training in terms of the agency and the AAT or the AAT's replacement might be of assistance? Absolutely. Um, You know, despite the fact that the staff at the agency are there um, solely for the existence and assistance of um, people with disability, it seems that often they have no understanding. It was suggested to one of my clients at the by an agency staff member that um, his his inco- a person's incontinence at night and um, and waking up and requiring assistance should be dealt with by sleeping tablets and chemical restraint. So um, you know it, for that to be coming out of an agency member's mouth is just gobsmacking and horrifying. That really certainly is. So what would you like to see change? <laughs> well, I'm very happy that there's going to be a new new body set up and that the AAT is being abolished. Um, my, my biggest change really needs to be, it needs to be back at the agency. It needs to be back there where they're, um, you know, they've got proper decision-making They've got proper um, explanation to participants about why supports are being um, declined, but also why they're being approved so that, you know, that people start to understand what the parameters are. Um, And so I guess the the decision-making really at the first instance, if they need further evidence, get it. Don't, Don't leave it until you're at the tribunal or whatever the new body is going to be to say, oh, we need we need a bit more information. Do you think there is a need for all of this information gathering? Are there occasions where you feel like it's intrusive for no particular reason? Uh, yes, I do. I, I often, I, I, there's requests for, um, you know, sort of lived experience statements and for more reports and reports being done when a person's, um, you know, disability and the impact that it has on it on their life is stable. It, and they have the audacity to ask for functional assessment reports to be done, which at least they, they can't demand at the AAT level anymore and get orders out of the AAT for so-called independent examinations. So it is very intrusive and uh, I think that, you know, if they have queries about reports, they should be exercising their powers under Section 36 of the NDIS Act to ask for more information of the um, of the people providing the reports. Jenny Dreddy, thank you so much for your time. It's fantastic to hear all your experience, so thank you for the work that you do too. Thank you. I hope you got a lot out of this episode of Law Matters, looking into disability and the NDIS. A big thank you to your host today, Ellen Higginbottom, and also to Jenny Dreddy, who's the principal at Dreddy Legal in Victoria, for her time and her expertise in this area. I'm Catherine Henry of Catherine Henry Lawyers, and if you need help navigating a law matter in regards to your disability needs, please do get in touch with my team at Catherine Henry Lawyers. 
This podcast was produced by Liz Clarkson of Pod and Pen Productions and Sarah Shands of Point Five Productions. Sound engineering by Sawtooth Studios. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review. You can subscribe to Law Matters with Catherine Henry Lawyers wherever you get your podcasts.